You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Unfortunately, the uh, beginning of the Exodus story uh, is not all that far-fetched uh, or unimaginable, is it? Uh, this, the type of human misery that we just heard about in Exodus 1 and 2 is actually not really uncommon uh, in human history. Uh, the human race has a long history uh, of treating uh, the human race in really bad ways and mistreating the human race. Uh, today, there are an estimated 35 million slaves uh, on our planet, Uh, people owned, held by other people against their will and made to do things against their will, sometimes horrible things, Uh, not free to come and go and live their lives as they want to. Uh, This week I was in contact with Ushwin uh, Rao. Uh, Many of you know Ushwin. He's a member of Providence Church. Uh, Ushwin is now living in India. He's working with uh, International Justice Mission uh, uh, over in India. And one of the things they're focused on in that country is freeing those who are held as slaves and to do hard labor, most often in brick kilns, uh, brick factories. And this week, Ushwin sent me several stories of uh, this modern-day slavery. Uh, and the thing that was the most moving thing that he sent me this week was just a photo uh, of a man's hands. and was just it was just close up on hands held like this. And these hands were so blistered, uh, so bruised, so calloused, so dirty because of the work they had been doing in the brick kilns and the heat uh, and, and the scorching sun for 12 hours a day, seven days a week. And it reminded me of Exodus chapter 1. My eighth grade daughter is currently doing a genocide project for one of her classes. Her project, her particular project, is about what happened in Rwanda uh, in the 1990s. Here's the sad part, though. She could have chosen from a multitude of genocides, and I I suspect there won't be any duplicate projects in her class because history is littered with genocide, isn't it? Russia, China, Nazi Germany, the extermination of Native Americans on our own soil, Bosnia, Syria, the list goes on and on and on. The human race uh, has a long history of mistreating the human race. And so the beginning of Exodus, I think, just lead, reads like a news story, right? It's not a, it doesn't seem surprising to us. It reads like a news story and, you know, you fill in the blank. You fill in the century. You fill in the continent. It just reads like a news story. But there's something, I think, much deeper about what's going on here at the beginning of Exodus than just the bare reporting of history. It's not just a news story. It is a historical account, uh, but it's not simply a secular historical account. It is a spiritual history. And when I studied Exodus 1 and 2 this week, I kept thinking about this phrase, a tale of two gods. I kept thinking, you know, these two chapters are giving us a tale of two gods here. One is a false god. The other is the true God. One uses his power to subjugate. One uses his power to save. One uses his power to dominate people. The other uses his power to deliver people. I want us to uh, look at two things in this narrative today. Uh, Number one, I want us to look at Israel's plight. Like, let's look at their desperate situation. What's going on with them? And then I want us to look at God's provision. 
In other words, in light of Israel's plight, what does God provide? What does he bring into it? And as we look at these two things, Israel's plight, God's provision, I think we'll see the contrast between these two gods become very clear. And I actually think we'll learn some stuff uh, for our own lives too. All right, so look at Exodus 1. If you have a Bible or if you can get your hands on a Bible, turn there because, because this is narrative, I want you to see it and, and be able to follow along. Exodus chapter 1. It's the second book of the Bible, the first chapter. Let's look at Israel's plight. Their plight is that they're living life under the dominion of a false god. Verse 8. This is where we left off last week. Now there arose a new king, a new pharaoh over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. If you remember, Joseph was Israel's son, Jacob's son. He was a Hebrew. He had been a powerful leader in Egypt. God had used him to save the Egyptian people and a lot of other people from famine. Joseph was someone who was revered by the Egyptians. But Joseph had died. His brothers had died. That whole generation had died. And you get the idea from the text here, the narrative, that several generations have gone by because Israel has gone from 70 people to a multitude of people. And now there's this new pharaoh, this new king, who didn't know Joseph. And that's problematic because in politics, it's all about who you know, isn't it? And so Israel found themselves in a situation where they were outsiders and yet they had no inside connection. They had no one uh, to represent them. So the new king was kind of like, Joseph, never heard of him. Not sure you're talking about. And this is what the new king does. Look at verse 9. And the new king said to his people, behold... The people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Now, I want to give you a little uh, background on the role of the Pharaoh in ancient Egypt. Uh, The Pharaoh was more than just a political ruler. Uh, He was thought to be a god on earth. He was, he was in the incarnate sun god, Ra. And this god, Ra, was the one who was thought to control all things in the created order. And so Pharaoh was not just a king, he was a god king. And he had one chief responsibility, and this all fell on his shoulders, and this was his responsibility. He was to, he was to maintain what was called the mayette. He was to maintain the harmony, the universal harmony in the country. He was to maintain order over any chaos that was threatening the harmony in the country. And so as the God King, he was the high priest. He made all the laws. He owned all the land. He defended the country. He secured all the natural resources. The Pharaoh did everything necessary to maintain Mayet, harmony. Now, Israel has become a threat to the harmony of Egypt, haven't they? Because there's too many of them. And they might, they're outsiders, they might turn on us and war. And so the Pharaoh, as the God King, it's his responsibility to do something about them. He starts with fear and distrust, but he quickly moves to a policy of segregation and discrimination. Right? Whenever you see us versus them language, oppression is not far away. And we see that in verse 10. He says, let us, uh, where is it? Let us deal shrewdly with them. Let us, the Egyptians, deal shrewdly with them. And so oppression is right around the corner. But what I want you to catch from this story is this is not merely political oppression. This is not merely cultural or ethnic oppression. 
This is religious, spiritual oppression. Because Pharaoh is the God of the land, and he intends to rule over Israel as, as their Lord. Israel, you may not serve your God because you serve me. I'm your God. And his plan to deal with Israel is to dominate them and to dehumanize them. Right? And he goes after two areas in the lives of the Hebrews. He goes after their work, and he goes after their childbearing. And isn't that interesting? Because what are the two things that God gave to, the, to human beings at creation that would help define our glorious purpose on planet Earth as human beings? In Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, so bear children and have dominion over the earth. Work the garden, Adam. Work the garden, Eve. Cultivate the earth. He gave them work. And then Pharaoh, this false god, comes along and opposes, really, God's original design for human beings. This is satanic leadership that we see in Pharaoh. This is rebellion against God himself. Look how he goes after their work in verse 11. Verse 11 says, Therefore the Egyptians set taskmasters over the Israelites to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more the Israelites were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. So oppression wasn't causing their growth to slow down. It was just causing them to, the population to grow even more uh, and more. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So the, the oppressors dread and fear the oppressed ones. Therefore, they oppress them more and more. And you know what they use as the instrument of their oppression? They use work. Listen to these next two verses. Listen to these descriptive words of work for the Israelites under Pharaoh. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And I kept thinking of those hands, that, that guy in India and what his hands looked. They were so beat up. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. See, God gave us work as a good thing. Work is actually meant to be a joy in our life. It's part of what it means to be a human being, fully human. And yet Pharaoh took that and twisted it, and he made work a bitter thing. He made it a dreaded thing. Uh, Pharaoh took one of the marks of being a human being, work, and he used it as an instrument of dehumanization in the lives of people. This is satanic. This is rebellion against God. But it gets worse. Pharaoh's slavery program is not succeeding in slowing down the population, and so he goes after childbearing. Look at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the, the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. I think it's a little shot to Pharaoh. 
Yeah, because your women are not quite as strong as our women. That's why this is happening. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Do you see the downward spiral of a death culture here? He started with a secret policy of infanticide. Just gathered the midwives in, hey, listen, here's the plan. When a Hebrew baby is born, you guys kill him. You know, the midwives that are working for you, you kill them. Just no one knows to know about this, but this is how we'll control the population. Let's just keep it between us. This is how we'll control. Didn't work. So he moves from this secret policy of infanticide to a more open policy of genocide. He makes a command to all his people. Everyone is in on this now. When a Hebrew baby is born, we throw him into the Nile. We drown him. Pharaoh is the anti-God. Pharaoh is the enemy of life. See, God made multiplication to be a part of the human calling, but Pharaoh was trying to snuff out multiplication. God said, all people are created in my image. Pharaoh is trying to snuff out the image of God. He is treating the Israelites as less than human, as if throwing a little baby boy into the river is no different than like stepping on a bug or something. This is satanic. This is dark. I want to give you a little sidebar about the Hebrew midwives. Don't you think it's pretty cool that we know their names? Shifra and Pua. I mean, here we are reading a historical account about ancient Egypt, one of the most powerful and glorious civilizations ever known to man. Like historians and archaeologists through the centuries have tripped over themselves to study ancient Egypt. We've got traveling museums about King Tut. We've got guided tours uh, of the pyramids. We all know what the the Great Sphinx looks like, right? The nose is missing. We're so fascinated by hieroglyphics and carvings and mummies. We all know how to walk like an Egyptian, right? Just, right? We know Egypt. We're fascinated with Egypt. It's interesting to me that the Bible has no interest in promoting the glories of ancient Egypt. The Bible has no interest in celebrating the accomplishments of Pharaoh or pumping up his ego because he's doing enough of that himself as he builds monuments for himself all over the desert landscape on the backs of slaves. He's not, the Bible's not interested in that at all because, in fact, the Bible doesn't even mention the name of Pharaoh. We don't even know which one it is. It's just one of the Pharaohs because it doesn't really matter because he's not the point. God and his work are the point. But here in the midst of this, there's these two women. They are foreigners. They are outcasts. They are poor. Uh, they have, they're, they're obscure. They have a behind-the-scenes job that no one knows about, and yet they fear God, and they obey God, and they choose to preserve life at great risk to themselves. And you know what God does? He honors them. We sit here today knowing their names. Because God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God is often at work behind the scenes through the mundane faithfulness of his most obscure saints. Isn't that cool? 
But Israel, their plight is that they are living under the dominion of a false god. Uh, This is the darkest, most desperate time in the history uh, of Israel. They are enslaved, they're exploited, uh, their kids are being systematically murdered. God seems silent. God seems absent. Hundreds of years are going by. They are powerless to do anything to save themselves and get them out, themselves out from under uh, the reign of this false God under Pharaoh's rule. They can't save themselves. And listen, this is, this is where salvation always starts. Salvation always starts and begins with human impossibility. Salvation never begins with, I can do this. I can figure this out. I got it. I can fix this. I can get out from under this. Salvation always begins with inability, with powerlessness under the dominion of a false God. I think this story actually tells us what life under a false God looks like and feels like. See, false gods have a way of dominating us. They want to rule over us. They want to control us. False gods have a way of dehumanizing us, don't they? Like false gods never make us more human. They always make us less human. Like for example, money. Will was talking about money just a moment ago. If we make money one of our gods, it will never make us more human. If money is the god that we serve, eventually we become less generous, less secure, less thankful, less caring. If, if we make comfort one of our gods, it doesn't make us more human. We become less willing to get our hands dirty and serve the very thing we're created to do, to get our hands in the soil and serve. If comfort is our God, we're less willing to take risks. We're less willing to do the hard thing, even though it's the right thing. Serving comfort doesn't grow us to be more who we're created to be. It, we become less who we're created to be. Life under false God is a slavery, is slavery. Jesus said everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The Apostle Paul said you're, you're slaves of the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So do you believe that life under false God is, is slavery? Like, do you really believe that deep down? Or are you a little bit comfortable with life in Egypt. I mean, because honestly, life under a false god has a certain stability to it, doesn't it? A certain security to it. Because, you know, Pharaoh's given us stuff to eat. He's given us a place to stay. He's given us things to do. So, you know, it's the life we know. It's a little bit hard to give it up. I think a good application question for us is this. Have I gotten to the point of desperation with sin? Like, have I gotten to the point where I'm at the end of myself, where I realize I can't save myself? Like, I, I'm powerless over sin and false gods. I can't save myself from anger or lust or unforgiveness or comparison or alcoholism or greed or envy or materialism. I can't save myself from these things. Have you gotten to the point where you're willing to cry out and say to the only one who can save you, I give up? Lord, save me. Have you gotten to that point? Israel got to that point. Look at the end of chapter 2, verse 23. The story skips ahead 80 years here 
from the end of chapter 1 to the end of chapter 2 is 80 years. If you read Acts 7, you see Stephen's uh, speech or sermon. Uh, he talks about that, and he gives, it gives you those dates. Uh, 80 years from the end of chapter 1 to the end of chapter 2. Verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt, or the pharaoh, died. I don't know if it was the same pharaoh from chapter 1, because 80 years have gone by. It could be another one. Uh, Nevertheless, the conditions are still the same. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. I love those verses. God heard, God remembered, God saw, God knew. God heard the groaning of his people. God remembered his covenant with them. God saw their situation. God knew what they were going through, and God knew what to do. This is the true God. This is not like the false god, Pharaoh. This is the God who uses his power not to subjugate, but to save. How do we know this? Because 80 years before they cry out here at the end of chapter 2, God has already set a plan in motion to save them. God has already provided for them what they need for deliverance. And so I want to look uh, at the beginning of chapter 2 for a few minutes. Uh, Flip back to the beginning of chapter 2. And I want to look at God's provision. Israel's plight is life under a false God. God's provision is that a Savior is born. Remember what is happening at the end of chapter 1? The law of the land is all Hebrew baby boys, throw them in the Nile so that they drown. So uh, at the highest level of government, uh, genocide is mandated. It, it It is decreed, it's required, genocide. That's the context into which God steps into history and provides a deliverer, provides a Savior. Look at... uh, Chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, a, a beautiful child, she hid him for three months. Can you imagine the mix of emotion that this couple felt when this little boy was born? I mean, on the one hand, deep joy. Lord, thank you. You've provided a son for us. On the other hand, this child is under a death sentence. He's supposed to die. This is deep sorrow. You know, for us today, the gender reveal party is something that we celebrate, right? Is it going to be pink or is it going to be blue? Is it going to be blue or is it going to be pink? And we've got balloons and cakes and we celebrate. The gender reveal here is a dagger for them because it came up blue, right? We've got this little boy now gift of God, and yet what are we going to do? Are are we going to keep the law and throw him into the Nile? Are we going to break the law and save him? What do we do? And so for three months, this mom uh, lives in fear trying to keep this little boy a secret, holding him close. Shh, shh, shh. Can't do that. You can't keep a baby secret. I mean, even in church each week, we hear multiple times, multiple baby sounds in this room, don't we? And we love that. We love their little voices throughout the room. You can't keep a baby secret. You can't shush them for very long. And she tried for three months, but then she realized, I can't do this anymore. And so she takes action. Look at verse 3. 
When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch, it's like tar, and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. Placed the, ba- the child into the basket and then she put the basket into the Nile. Every parent knows that one day they will send their child out into the world, right? In 15 months, we will send our oldest daughter, Lauren, out into the world to go to college. We have had her for almost 17 years, and we only got 15 months left, and we will send her out into the world, and we will do it by faith, because sending your child out into the world is always an act of faith, and we'll send her off to college and trusting her to the one to whom she belongs anyway, right? This mom in this story had to send her child out into the world long before she should have. He's only three months old. Can you imagine the difficulty of her placing that baby into that basket and looking at him one last time, maybe touching his face, kissing him? Can you imagine the difficulty of closing that basket? And sort of pushing it off from shore, not knowing when you would see, if, she, if she would see that child again. This is a moment of great faith. It's a moment that's actually honored in Hebrews uh, chapter 11. This mom was saying to God, God, this child belongs to you. I commit him to your care, and she let him go. The law of the land was to cast all the baby boys into the Nile, the Hebrew baby boys, and she obeyed the law except for she cast him onto the Nile, didn't she? Now, I want you to consider the providence of God and everything else that happens next in this story. We named our church Providence four and a half years ago because we believe that God is always at work providing for His people, working out their salvation in their real lives. And this text, I think, assures us that this is the God that we worship and serve. Look at verse 4 there in chapter 2. And notice the providence of God. Verse 4, and his sister, like Moses' sister, the baby's sister, stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. She's watching the basket float down the river. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman. And she took it and she opened it. When she saw the child, And behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women uh, to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said, Yes, that's a great idea. Go. So the girl went and and called her own mom. She she called uh, uh, Moses' mom. And Pharaoh's daughter said to Moses' mom, Take this child and nurse him for me. And I will give you your wages. So the woman took, so Moses' mom took Moses and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, I want you to think about the providence of God at work here, how God's hand is involved in every aspect of the story. We see God's hand in the, in, in the basket itself. Do you know the, word, the Hebrew word for basket that gets used here in this story? It's the word ark. Like, the author could have used another word for basket, but the author uses the word ark here. 
And the only other place in the Bible that that word ark gets used is in the account of Noah in Genesis. That's pretty amazing. Like God fulfilled his plan of salvation by saving Noah and his family in an ark. And God here fulfills his plan of salvation by saving Moses in an ark. Noah and Moses are saved. They're they're brought through the waters of death in an ark. Isn't that amazing? We see the providence of God at work through Pharaoh's uh, daughter. I mean, she just happened to be down there bathing. Uh, She just happened to look up and see the basket as it was floating by. She just happened to be Pharaoh's daughter. I mean, the last person that Moses' mom wanted that basket to end up in the hands of was an Egyptian, because all the Egyptians knew the law, throw the babies, the baby boys into the, into the Nile. Now, now she's, this baby's in the hands of Pharaoh's daughter. Certainly, this Egyptian of all Egyptians would obey the decree of her father. Certainly, Moses is doomed, and yet God gives Pharaoh's daughter a heart of compassion towards this baby, a heart to uh, adopt this baby as her own. And what she does is she unknowingly calls Moses' mom to come and do for money what she would have done for free, what any mom would do for free, that is to nurse and bond with her child and to begin raising her child and begin setting in the earliest stages of his life his identity as one of God's people. God is at work to save. God is always at work to save. I want you to finally notice the providence of God at work through Pharaoh himself. Moses was adopted into Pharaoh's family. So Moses was not raised as a slave in Egypt. He was raised as a son. Acts chapter 7 says, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and in his deeds. So this little Hebrew baby slave boy became an Egyptian son, and then he was given the finest education known in the world at the time because God is at work to save. And do you see the wonderful irony of the providence of God in this story? And when I say irony, I mean, do you see uh, the irony in the way that God provides here, in the way that God saves here? See, Pharaoh commanded that all the Hebrew baby boys would be cast into the Nile, and then God uses Pharaoh's plan, his evil, wicked plan against him, because Moses' mom casts her son into the Nile in an ark, and that ark floats right down to Pharaoh's doorstep, and he ends up in his house, and then Pharaoh ends up paying for this little boy to be fed and clothed and protected and trained and educated right under his care, right on his bankroll. I love that. That is so great. This is how God saves. This is the Christmas story, if you think about it. Just 14, 1500 years earlier. I don't know the dates, but a lot earlier. It's the Christmas story. We all know that centuries after the birth of Moses, another baby was born, Jesus. And just like Moses, Jesus was born under a death sentence because King Herod wanted him dead. Just like Moses, Jesus was born into poverty. Just like Moses, Jesus' parents trusted their God. Just like Moses' parents. Just like Moses, Jesus was protected by God. Just like Moses, Jesus was raised and prepared for years and years and years and years before he ever came onto the scene as a Savior. And the story of Jesus foreshadows, or the story of Moses foreshadows the story of Jesus. Here's the big difference Moses was a Savior. 
Jesus is the Savior. Moses was sent to deliver the people of Israel. Uh, Jesus was sent to deliver humanity. In the story of Moses, we learn how God saves. God brings the Savior right into the midst of the evil situation. He brings, he, he brings the Savior right to the doorstep of evil. He confronts evil head on. God doesn't save from the outside. He saves from the inside. God sent his son as a human being in order to save human beings and to restore our full humanity. See, Pharaoh enslaves, but God saves. False gods always enslave. God always saves. God was working behind the scenes to provide for our salvation long before we ever knew we needed it, long before we ever cried out for it. God did everything to secure your salvation in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus before you were ever born. Jesus came into enemy territory to set us free from the tyranny of the devil. We said that in our profession of faith today. You know what the devil is called in the Bible? The God of this world. Jesus sets us free. Are you willing to cry out to him? Like the pattern of the Christian life is this. Jesus saved me. And then the next day and the next day and the next day, keep crying out. Jesus save me. Jesus keep saving me. Jesus keep saving me. And here's the promise when we cry out to him. God hears. God remembers. God sees. And God knows. Because he's a God who saves. It's great news. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.